Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Now, when we talk about ancient life on this planet, no organism can hold a candle to what plants have been able to achieve. Indeed, among the oldest organisms in the world are plants, and the leader of those are usually a member of the gymnosperm lineage. But as you're going to hear today, the age of a plant is not as straightforward and understandable as it is for, say, something like an animal. It's actually kind of a gray area in most cases, and it all comes down to the fact that plants are fundamentally different types of organisms than animals are. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Chris Earle. He is particularly interested in biodiversity, but today he's here to talk to us about trying to understand plant age. You may be familiar with Dr. Earl's work on the gymnosperm database over at carnivores.org, and I absolutely love the articles he has over there, all of the great information, and I couldn't think of a better person to sit down and talk with about this topic. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Chris Earl. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Chris Earl, it is great to have you on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work. Let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay. I'm here mainly because I have a website at conifers.org called the Gymnosperm Database that I started back in the late 1990s and has been online ever since then. And uh, I provide some rationale there, but basically one of my primary interests in life is understanding what's going on with biological diversity of these conifers, how this supposedly primitive group of plants has become and remains one of the most dominant groups of plants in the world. There are only about 650 species of conifers in the world, and yet they dominate most of the world's forested ecosystems, including essentially all of the mountain forested ecosystems. And it's, it's ecologically and evolutionarily an interesting problem that ties into fundamental questions about biological diversity and the functioning of global ecosystems. And then that doesn't pay very well. So I'm also a <laughs> consulting ecologist. Um, I work on a variety of ecological problems. Most of my clients are government agencies. Excellent. And where did this love really begin for ecology, but then specifically conifers? I mean, when did you realize that was kind of the group you wanted to hone in on? Well, I was kind of an early bloomer in those respects. Mm. You know, I, was, I was about seven years old when I decided <laughs> I was going to be a scientist. And I was 13 when I decided I was going to be an ecologist. And, uh, and then in the summer of 1975, I spent mostly rock climbing in Yosemite. Nice. But along the way, I got to know some of the, some of the climbing rangers and some of the, the park scientists. And, uh, and they dragged me along to help out with some of their field work occasionally. And I learned about things like uh, pest insects and their influence on the long-term dynamics of forests in Yosemite National Park. And that was pretty interesting. Um, it didn't stop me from going on to get a degree in geology. Hmm. But uh, in the course of studying geology, I ended up working with tree rings and uh, worked at the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research in, uh, in Arizona did a lot of work with that. And then when I moved up to the University of Washington, um, Tree Rings was under the geology program in Arizona, was mm. under the forest ecology program in Washington. Mm. And so that kind of got me credential as a, as a forest ecologist. And that's actually what my, uh, what my doctorate is in. Awesome. So it's been a fun journey, a uh, long time in the making, which is always exciting to hear someone that has this background that started when they were super young, because I think it opens up doors to observations and lends to a, a greater passion for learning the subject in a very deep way. So from that mindset, 
you know, when you started to turn your attention to conifers, I, I think a lot of people can empathize with this idea that they often get pushed to the side as, like you said, kind of quote unquote primitive plants. But every conifer we see on the landscape today truly is a success story many hundreds of millions of years in the making. There's, there's nothing primitive about these plants, so to speak, right? That's correct. Um, you often hear the, the expression living fossil. And uh, it's really a misnomer because every one of these ancient organisms, and it's not just plants, you know, there are horseshoe crabs, for instance, have been around for 700 million years. They have had to survive every one of those 700 million years. And they've done it by continuing to function really well in their environment. Okay. It may be something that they got good at a long time ago, but they've had to stay good at it through all of the changes that have occurred over that vast ecological time span. And so um, these, uh, these so-called living fossils actually represent a very robust ability to adapt to a changing environment, one that has continued to, to serve them over vast spans of geologic time. I just had a geneticist on recently that's been looking at conifer genomes, and even they kind of tout this idea that, you know, even the stuff that we're seeing is not hanging on as it was, you know, there was rapid diversification of recent groups and, you know, quote unquote, relatively recent history. So these are things that are still being very dynamic in their environment, changing to suit conditions and finding new ways to exploit their, their niche space. Well, certainly that's true of conifers. Um, we can identify some individual species that have been around for tens of millions mm. of years, but mostly when people say conifers are ancient, they're talking about families of conifers I being see. ancient. And, and to a lesser degree, genera. Actually, pines are one of the oldest genera, pushing 100 million years. Wow. But um, some of the genera are only a few million years old, and perhaps the majority of species are only a few million years old. So they are, are really the most current representatives of types of adaptation that have been around for a great deal of time. And, and speaking of long spans of time, I mean, one of the main reasons we connected was over a lecture that you gave based on the longevity of some of these organisms. And I think when you look at the list of oldest organisms, trees tend to come out on top. And of those, a lot of gymnosperms tend to be up on that list. Is there any indication why gymnosperms particularly have such a, a propensity for live long and prosper sort of thing? Yeah, there are, there are some indications of that. And as a matter of fact, there's some stuff that is so new, it just came out last week. <laughs> um, and um, there are a couple of points here. One is the question of what do we mean when something lives a long time? Okay. People tend to be very anthropogenic about this. Mm -hmm. You know, grandfather lived a long time. Right. And, uh, you know, trees are not like human beings. You know, you cut the limb off a tree, it's not nearly as bad as if you cut the limb off a human being, for instance, okay? <laughs> trees are, in a sense, colonial organisms. Mm. For instance, there's something called branch autonomy theory that says basically a branch lives or dies by itself. Hmm. If a branch is able to produce food and send good stuff back to the mother tree, then the mother tree sends nutrients and water to that branch. If the branch stops producing to that level, then the mother tree cuts it off and it dies. And in fact, an old tree can go through a variety of sets of branches over the course of its life. So in a sense, a tree is kind of analogous to a coral, okay? You've got a dead skeleton of heartwood with a living shell of tissue living over the top of it. And a different part of the tree can live and thrive and survive completely independent of what's going on on a different branch of the tree. So a tree is not an individual, it's a colony. And one of the consequences of this is that when you think of how old a tree is, there are several ways of thinking about how old it is. You can think, how old are the oldest cells in this tree? Okay, mm. like the oldest cells in your body, for instance, are in your reproductive organs and, and your nervous system, and they are as old as you are. They were <laughs> formed when you were still in the womb. Uh, with a tree, the oldest cells are found in the sapwood of the tree, okay. which... And, uh, and basically what they're doing is they're, they're killing themselves. They're, they're transporting antifungal substances from the cambium of the tree into the heartwood of the tree. And they are the, the cells that are responsible for making hardwood. And the oldest cells in any tree in, a, in the whole world are maybe 150 years old. And they are those sapwood cells. So that's one way of saying how old a tree is. Hmm. Another way, the one that most people identify with is the idea that the plant that you see growing out there 
that is the organism. Okay. Now, as I just said, it's really a colony, but still those can persist for a long period of time. And one of the interesting things that we've found in studying these is that there's really no evidence that trees experience old age. Hmm. Okay. They remain vital for their whole life. And basically the only thing that can kill a tree is something that kills a tree. Hmm. Okay. Just left to itself. It's never going to die. It'll live forever. Now, there are lots of things out there that kill trees. Uh, the biggest one is gravity, okay? Trees, <laughs> trees all stick up, and they are, they're balanced upon their, upon their base. And if they tilt, it's a positive feedback process. They're mm. going down eventually, okay? It may take a couple hundred years, but they will eventually <laughs> fall. Uh, fungi, there's, there's a, a love-hate relationship mm. between fungi and trees. Trees depend on fungi to get them the nutrients that they need to make proteins and nucleic acids, and in, in other words, to survive, okay? Nitrogen is basically fed to the tree by fungi that are associated with its root system. And the, fun, the fungi do this for the tree because the tree feeds them sugar that is produced through photosynthesis. It's their primary food source. So there's, a, there's an economy going on there where they trade nutrients for sugar. But fungi also have a hate relationship with the tree in that there is a huge diversity of fungi that are adapted for decaying wood. And they will attack the tree in virtually any older tree that you see, some say a tree that's more than a century old, will have a variety of fungal infestations in it that are in the process of killing it. And eventually, if nothing else takes it out, these will eventually kill the tree. And this is what we see as one of the primary causes of death in the very oldest trees, the trees that live, say, more than a thousand years. Anyway, back on how old is a tree. The, the other thing is the genetic material of a tree is unique. Hmm. And as you probably know, aspen trees, for instance, are commonly a bunch of individual trees that are still a single clonal organism. Right. And we see this in conifers too. Redwood trees, particularly redwood trees that you find in old growth groves, usually have not grown from seed. They've grown from the roots or the stump or the, the fallen stem of a previous redwood tree huh. that simply sprouted spontaneously and grew up. And so nobody has really studied this problem closely, but most scientists that I know who study redwoods recognize that the redwoods have lived in a fairly stable climate environment for about the last 10,000 years or so. And so some of those trees are probably genetically 10,000 years old. Wow. They've lived there ever since that environment first became suitable for the, for the growth of redwood trees. Prior to that, they lived somewhere else and migrated across the landscape in response to climate changes. And, uh, these clonal organisms, there are some, not trees, that have been shown to be over 40,000 years old. Wow. So there are various different ways of looking at the age of the tree. Now, your other question was about the genetic adaptations that right. allowed this to happen. And um, one thing that has been found by studying bristlecone pines, okay, the, the oldest tree in the world conventionally, because there are some individuals of bristlecone pines that are over 5,000 years old. and um, there's a structure in the chromosome called a telomere, which is essential for the reproduction of chromosomes. And uh, telomeres experience a certain amount of wear and tear with repeated episodes of cell division. And eventually they start to break down and you start to get replication errors or failure to properly replicate a chromosome when a cell divides. Right. And uh, it's been found that uh, the telomeres in bristlecone pines are exceptionally long and robust. Hmm. And so these cells can divide a huge number of times before they start to experience problems. Now, that was worked out about 10 years ago. Now, the new research that I mentioned is applied to an organism called Welwichia. Have you heard of Welwichia? Yes, I have. But let's bring people up to speed if they haven't. Well, Welwichia has been called the weirdest plant in the world. <laughs> Fair. And, and it was called this by Victorian scientists who were not known for saying things like that. <laughs> okay, it was discovered in 1860. It grows in Namibia in South Africa, one of the driest deserts in the world, a coastal area where in some places rain has never been recorded. Wow. Uh, they do get coastal fogs. And the Welwichia is a plant that looks sort of like a footstool. Okay, It's wider than it is tall. It's a mass of wood. It has two leaves. It never has more than two leaves. 
And these two leaves start growing when it's when it's young, and they're very they're very unusual. Okay, most leaves grow from the tip. They have they have a tissue there called the apical meristem. And this is an undifferentiated tissue that can produce all sorts of different stuff. It can produce cones, it can produce wood, it can produce leaves. This is a, a very fundamental aspect of virtually all plants. Well, Wichia has a basal meristem, which means that the growing part of the leaf is at the base of the leaf. Mm. And these leaves are ridiculous. They're like three feet wide. They can get to be 100 feet long. They blow in the desert wind. Uh, they gradually erode at their ends, and they, and they grow out from the base. And they've been doing that on some of these plants for thousands of years. Okay. Wow. By the way, and I, and I didn't mention, well, which is not a conifer, but it's related to conifers. Right. It's part of a group called the gymnosperms. It's actually called a nidophyte, which is another living fossil group that's sort of in between the flowering plants and the conifers. But uh, current genetic studies suggest that the nidophytes are actually most closely related to the pines, huh. which don't look anything like them. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> odd. <laughs> uh, DNA. <laughs> but uh, Wawichia has been uh, a distinctive organism for about 100 million years. Mm. Okay, so this split took place a long, long time ago, and, and the organisms have changed completely in their appearance since that time. Wow. But anyway, the Wawichia has got a bunch of genes that are turned on in response to extreme environmental stress, which well, which he has lots of. Mm. And it turns out that one of the consequences of activating these genes is that there are far fewer replication errors in DNA reproduction. And there are also genes in this family that have the ability to repair damaged DNA. Wow. Okay. Now, a lot of these genes are common in many other kinds of plants, but they're not usually being expressed, okay? It's the stressful environment that Wawichia is in that has caused these genes to be turned on almost all the time. And one consequence is that it seems to be maintaining its DNA in a manner that is not susceptible to environmental damage. Wow. And this is thought to be contributing to its extremely long life. Now, like I say, this was published last week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's inevitable, I think, that this type of research will now be applied to a variety of other organisms, trying to find out if this relationship between stress tolerance and, uh, and DNA repair genes is widespread. But we've known for a long time that among the most uh, long-lived of, of organisms are organisms that live in extremely stressful environments. Hmm. Um, so pine being a classic example. Yeah, people get this idea in their head that it's like the forest primeval, this like very stable, sort of almost tropical fantasy land sort of forest system, but it really isn't. I mean, you look at where bristlecone pines or Wawichia, like you just outlined, grow, and it is, I wouldn't want to spend much time up there by myself. <laughs> yeah, they live in, uh, in environments that we can instantly see are really hostile. Yeah. I mean, they've if you really want to experience this, try going to a bristlecone pine in the wintertime. They live in some severe places. You know, I mean, 30 degrees below zero and 100 mile an hour wind is not unusual. But, uh, but of course, some of the oldest trees live in temperate rainforest environments, mm. right? Redwoods, uh, giant sequoias, the, uh, the Alaris of, of uh, South America can all get to be about 3,000 years old. These are actually also living in a very stressful environment. Hmm. They're all fighting for sunlight. Hmm. They have plenty of water by and large, but their relationship with the fungi is such that they are constantly being stressed. Uh, if you look at, for instance, the stump of a, of a redwood that was cut back in the old days when they did that, uh, the wood itself is very slow to decay. So you can find these stumps that are 150 years old and they're still in pretty good shape. Yeah. But Nearly all the trees had vast extensive rot in the center. Most of the center of the tree was gone. It was gone due to fungal decay. And so these trees are actually under a lot of stress as well. They're under stress because they're attacked from fungi and they're under stress because of their competitive relations with the, uh, the other trees that are around them. And so stress is actually very common in the plant environment. Okay. Basically all plants can be seen as being in a battle of some sort with either the physical environment 
or with the biological environment. And in, uh, in rainforests and areas like that, the emphasis is on the biological environment. And in places like high mountains and deserts, the emphasis is on the physical environment. But the reason that they are not doing even better than they are when we see them now is because of all these stresses that are being imposed on them. Wow. Yeah, it's wild to think about. But, you know, one great thing about stress tolerators, at least in the context of like maybe a bristlecone pine versus something that's living in a really dense temperate rainforest, is that they're often growing in other areas where super hyper competitive, fast growing vegetation can't get in there and, and really get the upper hand, you know, the live fast, die young sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's true. And so when you talk about measuring the age of a tree, I want to go back to something we sort of talked about in, in both sort of the modular aspect of tree growth, the cellular aspects of tree growth, and then the fact that so much of it's dead wood. And it really was reading the lecture manuscript that you have on your website that kind of made me go like, wow, I have thought about this for a long time, but never in this context is like when you are measuring the rings on, say, an old bristlecone pine that stretched back three, four thousand years, most of that is dead wood that lived that long ago and then you have this thin veneer so to speak of actual living tissue on the outside and so when you're looking at those cells how old are those i mean this this disconnect between what we consider living versus dead tissue it's it's cool to think that they've been going at it that long but the the living stuff is is relatively short in the context of the grand scheme of things yeah yeah let's talk a little bit about how a tree is put together yeah I mentioned apical meristem as being at the tip of a tree, and that is capable of differentiating to produce all the different kinds of, of cells that are in a tree. If you look at the trunk of a tree, what you are not seeing is a layer of cells called the vascular cambium. Mm. And this is just one or two cells thick, and it forms a complete ring around the tree. And the vascular cambium produces the bark on one side. Bark is also made up of dead cells, by the way and it produces the sapwood on the other side. The sapwood is made up of live cells. And the purpose of the sapwood is to convey water from the roots of the tree up to the top and to convey food that's coming down out of the top of the tree and convey that down to the roots and feed it to the fungi, okay? So those are processes that sometimes involve moving stuff against a pressure gradient or against an osmotic gradient. And so it requires a live cell to do the work to make that happen. The, the tree has to expend physiological energy in order to do that. And then inside of that is the heartwood and the heartwood is all the dead cells. And heartwood is basically, especially in conifers, it is sapwood that has had toxic substances put in it. And the purpose of those toxic substances is to retard attack by fungi. And it also confers a little added strength to the tree. Uh, another thing we see is that in most of the very old trees, there's a lot of that stuff. They have that in their live wood as well as they do in their dead wood. And so they generally show adaptations indicating that they're working especially hard to fight fungi. Hmm. And that contributes directly to their long life. And the other aspect too is this non-continuity of the germplasm. And when you think about long-lived organisms and evolution, you would think there would be, or at least you could understand the hypothesis that something that lives a very long time, especially in one place, wouldn't be as adaptable. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And from what I've been able to understand, a lot of it comes back down to this modular aspect of their growth, where you said a branch is operating on its own. And so really any mutation that happens in that branch can be very different than what's happening in another branch and another branch. And then you scale that up to the you know a 200-foot Douglas fir, for instance, or something like that. That could be, over time, a lot of mutations that could lead to uh, you know seeds or pollen carrying unique adaptations with them. This, I, I find this a, a very interesting idea myself, but I have to say that there's very little science underlying it. Okay. okay. We, we know that in principle, you can have a mutation that arises in one part of a tree. And, and at that point, that tree is basically now two different kinds of organisms <laughs> with one organism producing one genetic code and another part of the tree producing a different one. There's very little research that indicates that that happens in practice, but there is observational evidence. Um, A lot of ornamental conifers have actually been found in the form of like a single branch on a normal tree that had this weird color variation or this weird way of growing. And somebody cut it off and, and managed to get roots to grow on it and have now propagated an entire new line of trees just on the basis of that one odd branch that they found. 
Okay, so that's observational evidence that we do have genetically unique things going on. But, you know, I haven't actually found that uh, a geneticist has looked at this problem and found what's actually changing down at the molecular level. So it's, uh, it's kind of a, a latent area of research that hasn't been explored yet. Fair enough. I mean, I've read one piece on it. So yeah, to be fair, I didn't know how deep that rabbit hole went. But uh, it is intriguing to think about, especially in the context of something that could be thousands of years old. But another aspect that I think is kind of got my head scratching when, you know, reading and hearing you, you kind of orate some of the stuff is that this idea of them being modular, it's a, a single tree could be considered a colonial organism, but then you can stretch it out to like you were mentioning with the aspen groves. That to me is what I would always consider a colonial organism. But now I'm kind of going back and forth going like, okay, what really is other than the fact that it's one stem versus many stems, what's the real distinction we're making? Or is this us just, or me specifically trying to anthropomorphize too much about what constitutes an individual from an animalistic standpoint? I think, that actually, it is a lot about anthropomorphism. <laughs> once, once you get out of this idea of trying to relate to the tree as another human, they're really interesting organisms in their own right, right. because they, they do have a fundamentally different way of living. They never get to move. They spend their entire life in one place, which means that whatever the world throws at them, they have to deal with it. They can't dodge anything. They have this property that they can suffer catastrophic damage. And yet the tree can still survive. You know, there are trees. I have lots of pictures I could show you of trees that have fallen over. They're lying down on the forest floor. And now 20 new trees have sprung up out of them. <laughs> and, and this isn't just limited to a few species. Okay. Yeah, There's a huge yeah. number of conifers that are able to do this. One part of the tree has a life that's essentially independent of another part of the tree. You have this concept of branch autonomy of a tree that grows up and it reaches a certain height and then branches spring out in response to a useful environment. And they live for a while and they die and they fall off and new branches spring out in different places, depending on what's going on with damage to the tree or changed competitive relations with trees around it. Life as a colonial organism has allowed trees to adapt to their environment in ways that an individual organism like an animal could never do so. And it's one of the things that's directly given them this ability to live for thousands of years because they change a great deal in their appearance, in their function over the course of their lifespan. And they can do this in response to things like a changing climate or physical damage that occurs to them or competitive relations with organisms around them or, or being attacked by herbivores, just a variety of things that, that they've learned to adapt to and they can do it without ever moving anywhere. Yeah, it makes me think of what was going on with the brood X cicada and everyone freaking out that they were going to hurt their trees. And you're thinking about, you know, even an oak tree that's 400 years old. If cicadas like that happen every 17 years, this is something this tree has weathered and will continue to weather time and time again. And that's another point to be made here is that what we think of as damage or something catastrophic that happens once in a lifetime in our lifetime can be a repeat offense that happens pretty regularly in the lifetime of even a modestly long-lived tree. Yeah. And, and actually that raises another issue, which is um, you've probably heard of selfish gene theory. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is this theory that basically says it's every gene for himself and it's not the organism that matters. Okay. The organism is just a carrier for genes. What really matters is the gene because the gene is what replicates and, and genes basically go on forever until they mutate. So for instance, you could look at something like uh, the ponderosa pine. Okay. The oldest known ponderosa pines over a thousand years old and uh, they endure, they stand there, they, they see, catastrophes come and go. They have an amazing ability to survive fires. Fires burn through ponderosa pine groves all the time. The big trees don't care. And then on virtually the same site, same climate, same soils, you can have lodgepole pine growing up instead of ponderosa pine. Hmm. And lodgepole pine sometimes doesn't live more than 30 or 40 years. Okay. Lodgepole pine grows like your lawn. There, there may be a hundred stems coming up in a square yard. And they, they grow up and they burn like crazy. You set fire to a lodgepole pine forest and <laughs> it all goes up. Okay. <laughs> remember, remember when Yellowstone burned up oh, about 12 years yeah, ago? Yeah. Okay. That was all lodgepole pine. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. 
<laughs> okay. But, uh, but lodgepole pine responds to fire by opening its cones. It has these cones that have a, a resin band that seal them. And when a fire happens, the cones pop open right after the fire and let their seeds fall on the freshly exposed mineral soil. And a year later, you've got a thousand lodgepole pine seedlings in every square yard. Okay. So the genes of lodgepole pine go on for millions of years this way, even though the tree itself might not live more than 20 or 30 years. They don't care about the fact that the tree disappears. It's the genes that are driving the process. And the ponderosa pine is being driven the same way. It's just that one has decided to live with fire by burning up like a phoenix. It rises from the ashes. <laughs> and the other has decided to live with fire by ignoring the fire. It doesn't care. Hmm. It's it's fascinating to think of sort of these spectrum of possibilities, and that's really what you try to communicate with a lot of people is that biology, ecology, all of these natural sciences are spectrums of possibilities, and, and organisms can sort themselves out. And this brings up this idea of sort of, you know, all this popularity around tree consciousness and sharing and the wood wide web, and you get into this idea of like, okay, is it competition? Is it cooperation? But you, you know, you spend any time in the literature, you go like, well, there's different areas you can sort of sort organisms out along that and competition and cooperation can be two sides of the same coin very often, especially if you get a stand of all genetically related individuals. And I wish there was more nuance to these discussions, because it just seems like someone's going, oh, it's all altruism. Kumbaya, the forest is just a big sharing entity. <laughs> Where do you kind of fall out on these sorts of ideas? Or do you have thoughts on them, at least? Well, you know, again, we're talking about anthropomorphism. Um, <laughs> you get people to identify on a personal level with the forest, mm. then they're likely to care about it. Right. And if they don't identify on a personal level, then they're less likely to care. Now, if you spend years of your life on this stuff and read about it and and you know, if your idea of a good way to spend your spare time is to hike through the forest for a few weeks and think about what this feels like from a tree's point of view, then that's great. You can get into the tree's head. Um, most people don't have the time and don't have the knowledge to get to that point of view, but they can still develop a sympathetic relationship with the forest by anthropomorphizing the trees. So... Yes, it's a sin to do this. Okay. <laughs> Scientists don't forgive this. Scientists tend to roll their eyes and heave great sighs when they see these popular articles about how the trees talk to each other and things like that. But uh, I don't I don't personally think it, it's a big problem. Okay. If you can get in touch with the trees by anthropomorphizing, and if that leads you to want to learn more about them and learn how a tree lives a very different life than you do, just as any other organism plant or animal lives a very different life than you do mm -hmm. go for it but uh, but it does take a certain amount of time and commitment to get to that level of understanding of the forest and it's always going to be something that's relatively uncommon in our society that's <laughs> a that is such a refreshing viewpoint to hear coming from someone such as yourself because I, you know, I started off as like the, the rolling their eyes scientist, but the more I've been doing science communication, the more I realize how difficult it is to break out of the choir and go a little bit beyond your comfort zone. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Someone who I can't remember the name once said like effective science communication, communication to the public often needs some room to breathe. And I've really let up because at the end of the day, like you said, if someone comes away with a deeper appreciation that they didn't have before, what more can you ask for really in our society? We're just too specialized to, to have everyone care on the same level that you and I do. And, you know, frankly, I don't know a scientist who at some point in usually in their childhood didn't have that, that flash of communication with <laughs> the natural world and found that that was one of the main drivers for what they went on to do as their life's purpose. So everybody's been there. Yeah. Yeah. You got to ease up and empathize a little bit more with your fellow humans. <laughs> but, you know, as someone that's been obsessed with this stuff really has, you know, poured their passion into the subject. I mean, you've probably spent some time traveling and seeing some of these truly large or even just ancient trees because size isn't always an indicator of age in the tree world, too. Have there been some memorable experiences that you've had in your time, you know, kind of understanding and trying to experience these organisms? Oh, uncountable. Um Actually, a lot of it's it's come to me through the website, but oh. but also a lot of it's just come to me through uh, 
personal and professional development. For instance, a lot of people are excited about the idea of climbing redwoods and studying <laughs> things that go on in the canopy of redwoods. And uh, I have some very good friends, you know, some of my closest friends in the world are, are the people that basically started that research. Nice. So I've climbed a lot of redwoods very and cool. giant sequoias and 300 foot Douglas firs and 250 foot Sitka spruces and stuff like that. Haven't been up any of the eucalypts, but they're just flowering plants anyway. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Lame, but uh, but that stuff that that's a hoot. That's that's a lot of fun to go up there. You know, hang oh, up, bet. hang from a rope three hundred feet in the air and take tree cores out of a redwood tree. I mean, the thing so, that blew my mind about the redwoods the first time, I mean, I'd seen pictures growing up. It was always the gold standard of natural experiences for me. And when I finally got there was I went, oh, my God, none of these pictures prepared me for this. And you look up at, you know, 200 feet in the canopy and you see a limb that's bigger than any tree in the forest that I grew up with. It's it's otherworldly sometimes to think of the size of these things and that they've been there for so long, or at least their their skeletons have. <laughs> Yeah, people people adore big trees and old trees and tall trees. And and actually, you've, you've spent some time on my website. You know, I have a lot of information on yeah. that subject. And in fact, people send me emails out of the blue and stuff like that all the time on this subject. And really, for instance, when I go international traveling, I basically decide where I'm going to go based on the trees that grow there. Okay. <laughs> so, awesome. you know, like I've been, I've been to New Zealand and hung out in the giant podocarp forest wow. down there. And those are amazing. And been to Tasmania and hung out with these hundred meter tall flowering plants that they have wow. down there and you know, the giant eucalypts and uh, Mexico where they have 50 different species of pine all growing together and, uh, and stuff like that. The natural world is infinitely diverse, you know, and one of the reasons why I ended up studying conifers is because there's only 650 species. You know? <laughs> I actually had this idea that, well, there were, there were 150,000 flowering plants. There's no way I was going to get my head around that problem. I figured maybe 650, maybe in a lifetime, I could come to understand that. You know? uh, and that turned out that was optimistic, but, <laughs> but still it's nice to have something to work on that, uh, that you feel like there's discoveries to be made there. Okay. There's a good quote and it's a long one. I can't remember the whole thing, but the gist of it is that the great achievement in being a scientist is being able to recognize a problem whose time has come hmm. where a solution can be found and it's ready to be found and it'll extend your knowledge significantly. And that is the sort of thing that I look for. And that's the sort of thing that I've tried to work on. And whenever I find a problem like that, I've got that something going on, something exciting is happening in life. And it doesn't matter if it's some weird abstract problem about tree genetics, or if it's something really concrete, like climbing a giant redwood tree, it's the same level of excitement. It's the same sense of discovery. And the discovery is really a lot more of a hoot than hanging from a rope up in a redwood tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sort of fire in the belly feeling that you end up getting when you're unlocking mysteries of the natural world. I mean, these things that have been around much longer than we have. I mean, a big metaphorical sense, life got started and we're relative babies on the scene. I mean, those sorts of senses of discovery, I wish everyone could feel in the natural world because that's what you know makes me get up in, in the morning and it sounds like it's the same thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that really gets me about old trees, and especially in areas where people have been paying attention or at least have had the uh, affluence enough to be kind of giving these things extracurricular attention in a big way, is that some of these, you know, you can go back to see like a Taxus Baccata drawing of a plant in 1700. You could see photos of it finally coming out in like 1800. And it's essentially the same individual cloning itself or adding new stems over time. And you almost get a connection to the past that these trees are giving you, even just, you know, the human past that, that just, there's something almost like goosebumps about it. You have to sit down and just think of like, whoa, I'm doing the same thing these people were doing in 1700 around the same plant. I mean, that's wild. Yeah, the, the whole history of science thing is a lot of fun. And uh, you really get into it if you go back. One of the things I like to do is uh, it, goes to, it goes back to Carl Linnaeus, mm. okay? In 19, 1753, wrote this book called Species Plantarum, which basically means all the species of plants, which at that time there were about a thousand, okay? 
But, <laughs> okay, since then, we've discovered that, in fact, the world is quite a bit more diverse than, than you could see from Sweden in 1753. Bit plenty. <laughs> okay. But he sort of articulated the whole idea that what we want to do when we classify all these organisms is to build the tree of life, okay, to have a system where the name of the plant tells you something about what it's related to and where it came from evolutionarily. And scientific names of plants and, and animals, every, every living thing, all scientific names are intended to encapsulate this, this notion of phylogeny, of where things came from, of how the tree of life has grown. And this, in fact, is the reason why botanists are all the time changing plant names, okay, is <laughs> because we find out new things about how they're related. And in order to do this, you have to really, for each plant, you have to look back at its whole history, going back to the first guy who started writing about this plant, whether it was, you know, Linnaeus in 1753, sometimes even older. I right. mean, you mentioned the, uh, the European U, and, you know, there's information on that that goes back over a thousand years, wow. 2000 years. Okay. U is, uh, is one of the enormously culturally important trees that we have. People have literally been worshiping this plant for thousands of years in Western Europe. And uh, there, there are a lot of uh, conifers that people worship. You know, there are a lot of spiritually important ones. Any, anybody who's ever been to a redwood grove knows that redwoods are spiritually important. Yeah. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever been to a bristlecone grove. Hmm. But, uh, but this connection with the history of science is really interesting because to understand what these people thought about these plants, why they described them this way, why they gave them that name, you go back and you read the things that they wrote and you read about the, the adventures that they had. A lot of these people lived very dangerous lives. Yeah. I mean, in, an, an exploring botanist in the 19th century rarely died of old age. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. It was extremely dangerous work. You know, they were they were going to the tropics and, you know, sometimes they'd be there three weeks and then some mosquito would bite them. And they'd get a dengue fever and die, you know, things like that. Um, some of them were real Indiana Jones type characters. Mm. OK, they literally carried a bullwhip and wore a floppy brimmed hat. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it's 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 fun to read the history of science on these things. Yeah, certainly when I hang out with my botanist friends and we talk about how hard it is in the field and then we go back to our air-conditioned hotel rooms or field stations, yeah. it kind of puts things like that in context. You're like, oh, we've softened a bit, but often in good ways. Uh, you know, I don't <laughs> fear mosquito bites as much as I, you know, my, my forebearers probably did. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, with that in mind, thinking of sort of exploration and travel, are there any conifers or gymnosperms in general that you have yet to encounter in person that you would really like to? Yeah, all the ones I haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> any particular ones that stand out, like maybe are your next goals? Well, there are these places that are centers of endemism, okay, okay. places that have really high diversity. Uh, New Caledonia is uh, the ultimate tool for gymnosperm biologists. New Caledonia is a tropical island about 300 miles long northeast of Australia, and it has 43 species of gymnosperms there, conifers that are not found anywhere else in the world. Wow. And a lot of them look really weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I have a page on this on my website, but uh, if Wellwichia hadn't already been the weirdest plant <laughs> in the world, some of these would be contenders. They just, they don't look anything like you imagine a conifer should look. You know, they look like, you know, a frozen firework with rays exploding <laughs> out of a ball, <laughs> things like that. They're completely bizarre plants. Uh, so that would be a fun place to go. Yeah. Uh, Japan. Japan has 22 species of conifers, uh, most of which aren't found anywhere else in the world. Uh, Southwest China, which I've been to, but it was over 30 years ago. And to go there again with what I know now would be really fascinating. Uh, Taiwan. Taiwan has got some of the biggest trees in the world and some of the tallest trees in the world. And it's not widely appreciated, but there are, there are trees in, in Taiwan that are comparable, almost as big as the redwoods. Okay. Trees that are 15, 18 feet in diameter and grow 300 feet tall. So it'd be really cool to go there. Uh, there are a few other places. Sure. Yeah. We could get a picture. I mean, there, yeah. there are, there are weird, bizarre, amazing plants all over the world. There is a cypress that lives in the Sahara desert 
And I'm hmm. talking serious Sahara Desert here, okay, places where it never rains. They, they, they live in wadis. They have access to groundwater. There are only 300 of these plants known to exist in wow. the world. And many of them are over a thousand years old. Jeez. So, and uh, everybody I know has seen them just raves about the place. Wow. So. Sounds powerful. Yeah. And, you know, I think too, as someone who's got a little bit of a background in geology as well, you can appreciate just how much, you know, this is what I think about a lot of times when I go to museums or anything like that, where I get to see fossils and just how much even just the antiquity of some of these lineages, not necessarily individuals can teach us about the larger scheme of life on this planet, how plate tectonics works. I mean, you know, you find Seattopitis, for instance, the Japanese umbrella pine in Japan today, but there's been fossils of it found in Europe or even, you know, Don Redwoods before we found them and brought them around the continent to plant, you know, there were fossils here in North America. It's, it's so cool to look at some of these lineages in the fossil record. You could look at a rock and then look at the same needle and go almost indistinguishable. (laughs) Yeah, evolution doesn't really make sense unless you understand plate tectonics. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there are so many groups of animals, and, and conifers maybe more than most um, most critters, but there are all sorts of different organisms show plenty of evidence that Europe used to be bumped up against Eastern North America, and Australia used to be bumped up against Africa, and things like that. So there's a lot of a lot of good stories to be told there in, in terms of the relationships. One of the things that I've, I've learned slowly from studying plants is how quickly they can actually move around on the landscape. Hmm. You know, we, we talked about how a tree's problem is that it never gets to go anywhere. But, uh, but we also talked about the continuity of the genome. And the tree's genes can travel all over the place. White bark pines uh, disperse mainly because their seeds get gathered by crows and uh, nutcrackers and related birds. And these will commonly fly 20 miles and then bury the seeds somewhere, usually in a nice sandy soil on a south facing hillside. And if the tree, if the bird doesn't come back and get those seeds, they'll sprout. And so basically this means that in one year, a white bark pine can move its seeds 20 miles across the landscape, okay? Thousands of years, it's no problem. They can go anywhere. They could cross the country in a thousand years. So most plants are actually highly mobile on the landscape if you look at a time scale of hundreds of years. And if you look at a time scale of thousands of years, almost all plants are highly mobile. Yeah, yeah. So they are capable of moving across vast expanses in response to climate changes. Now, I should make an important disclaimer here. I'm not talking about the kind of climate change we're experiencing right right now. (laughs) And a climate change that we are experiencing right now is actually a severe extinction threat to mm. a lot of plants and animals, including many groups in the conifers. Okay, and I've mentioned a couple of times there are about 650 species of conifers. Approximately half of those are threatened or endangered. Wow. So, uh, so there's very high risk of, of losing these, these organisms, in some cases to extinction, certainly through dramatic reductions in range for a huge diversity of organisms, including the ones that I study. Right. I mean, you got to figure the onslaught we're throwing at them from all sides. It's reductions in habitat, reductions in recruitment success, reductions in just their ability to get around the landscape in the context of like the human alterations that we've done. I mean, whereas they used to have thousands of years to go from, you know, refugia in the southern United States up into Canada. Now we're doing this in a few centuries. I mean, it's it's alarming to think of what we've thrown at these lineages that have held on for so long. And and we've broken the spatial connections that they used to use to make those migrations. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So what it's, is uh, what is on your current study list as of recent years? Oh, well. I've kind of been moving into semi-retirement from my day job lately. Congratulations. Now that I'm in my <laughs> 60s. So this is, this is allowing me to put more time into the conifer aspect of it. And uh, I think basically writing about conifers and about ecological change more than I have in the past is the primary thing. Okay. I'm not that much of a research-oriented scientist. I'm more the kind that goes in the field and looks at books and then basically interpreting okay mm. i'm writing for uh, general audiences i'm looking at uh, at work in uh, writing about ecology particularly here in the pacific northwest which is the area i know i know best 
I've been more active in a variety of activist causes here that are primarily related to forest management. And uh, from, from my own perspective, hopefully encouraging the, uh, the public agencies to think realistically <laughs> about climate change adaptation and major changes in forest management that are going to be needed if we're going to still have functioning forest ecosystems here in another 100 years. And uh, related work, photography, and, and working generally for things that are that are of general interest that will help to raise people's awareness of the challenges that we're facing with climate change and extinction threats, and uh, and persuade people that the human race needs to accept its responsibility as lords of the planet, <laughs> and do work to uh, focus more on stewardship than on continued exploitation. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's so nice to hear someone throwing themselves into this sort of work with your expertise. And I got to really commend your efforts. I absolutely love your website. And I think you're doing an amazing job of bringing life to these organisms and, and showing people just how amazing they are in their own rights and, and connecting people to this bigger, you know, ecological context in which these organisms sit in. So with that in mind, if people want to learn more about your work, read some of the stuff that you're writing or just kind of keep in touch or figure out more about the ways they can get involved in uh, encouraging agencies and whatnot to be better stewards of the landscape. Where do you recommend they go to find out more? Go to my website is a good place to start. Uh, <laughs> and send me an email if you have a question. Apart from that, um, a lot of this is bioregional and it depends on where you're located uh, and what the, what the local issues are. If you want to try to change the world, the best place to start is in your backyard and the best place to continue is in your, your town. Okay. Local work scales to global change. Hell yes. Wonderful sentiments. And I'll put up links to all of those, but Dr. Earl, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about this. Again, I mean it when I say I'm a huge fan of your work. I really love what you're doing. So please keep it up. And uh, yeah, thanks for taking time to tell us a bit about it. Well, it's been fun talking to you, and uh, let me know if you're ever in this part of the world. We can go look at some trees. Will do. Sounds like a blast. All right, okay. well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, enjoy uh, cruising into retirement. <laughs> All right, thank you. Cheers. <laughs> All right, that wraps up a fascinating conversation. There is so much more to plant age than I ever realized, and I hope you took a lot of food for thought from that conversation. I thank Dr. Earl for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I just want to drive home again this point that plants are so fundamentally different than animals. And that's why I like them so much. They're just so alien sometimes. But that is it for this week. All of the relevant information you want to catch up with this podcast episode or the podcast in general can all be found over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast in the show notes for each episode. That's where you can also find ways of supporting the show, for instance, by becoming a patron. Patrons help keep the show up and running, and I couldn't be doing it without them. So consider going over to patreon.com slash plants and supporting the show today. For instance, we have a shout out to the latest producer on this show that signed up over at Patreon, Lore. Lore signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting access to all of the wonderful content we put out on Patreon each and every month. So thank you to Lore and everyone else that supports this show from week to week. But otherwise, that is it. I'm going to let you go. Uh, but get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.